Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show... I am hungry. Frankenstein's monster, an iconic figure in popular culture. As with Dracula and the Wolfman, its image was bound to a single actor. In 1964, it was 25 years since the man last played the monster, yet no one had eclipsed him in the role. Some actors might have resented this typecasting, not Boris Karloff. And at the age of 76, he was enjoying a huge renaissance. And now a few words about them. Usually, they live in Central Europe. In the introduction to the film, you know, he's Karloff. He looks like an old man. He's not well. Then comes the movie itself, where he's got this huge power as this sort of peasant character. He's strong again. Then you have been wounded in the heart? I am hungry. A new generation had discovered Karloff through television, a medium he embraced since its early days. In 1966, that medium gave Karloff one of his most lasting hits. Every Who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. Even this late in his career, Karloff was taking on challenging projects. Targets is a, a very intense film that contrasted the world of an aging horror star who feels that his work is old hat and the rise of a young Vietnam vet who goes on a murder rampage and starts shooting people. That man has a This 90th anniversary of, well, Frankenstein, immortalized by Boris Karloff on screen back in 1931, Arts Express delves into surprising revelations about the acting legend and his own alienation that led him to embrace his iconic screen persona in more ways than one, and the legacy as well of Karloff's Frankenstein ushering in the whole horror genre is the subject of the documentary Boris Karloff, the man behind the monster. The filmmakers will explain coming up. But first, oh sure, it's Hollywood. They're a dime a dozen. That was the fun part about playing Vic Quickbuck. I don't want to call anybody out by name, but Hollywood is a selfish place. Almost everybody is in it for themselves. And that was actor D.B. Sweeney, our guest on the show this week, more often into playing tough guys on screen, but in his latest film, Turning Up Just in Time, for approaching October and Halloween, the Manson Brothers, Sweeney surprises with a different sort of character, money man Vic Quickbuck, who exploits modern-day gladiators desperate for work and will do anything, including virus-infected zombies in the ring. And the chilling off-screen references are clear in the here and now. Economic crisis cinema and a deadly pandemic. Sweeney will be talking about that and more, including his milestone career-defining roles in Francis Ford Coppola's Gardens of Stone, John Sayles' Eight Men Out, and memories of working with Dennis Hopper on Crush. And as Jack Dennison the husband of the late performer, screen legend, and anti-racist Dorothy Dandridge, portrayed by Halle Berry in Introducing Dorothy Dandridge. 
about which Sweeney recalled, Dorothy Dandridge was a trailblazer. Many called her the black Marilyn Monroe, but she was more than just a pretty face. She really wanted to have her voice heard. First, some scenes from introducing Dorothy Dandridge, then D.B. Sweeney. She was as beautiful as Marilyn Monroe, as alluring as Ava Gardner, and the first black woman to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress. I'm Dorothy Dandridge. She was everything America wanted a movie star to be. I'm going to make her a star. Except white. The public isn't ready for a colored leading lady. Ladies and gentlemen, the delicious, the divine, the delightful, Dorothy Dandridge. I've got rhythm. You think just because you become a big film star that people aren't going to treat you like you're colored? She still entered the theater through the back door. If she got in the pool, it would have to be drained. Drained? Tonight, I'll take my bows and exit stage rear, go through the kitchen, past the casino, around the pool that I'm apparently too dirty to swim in, up the service elevator, into my luxurious penthouse suite, sip my complimentary champagne, and pee in a brand new Dixie cup. Hello, and welcome to the show. Why did you want to be part of introducing Dorothy Dandridge and opposite Halle Berry as her husband, Jack Dennison? And what was it about the life of Dorothy Dandridge that drew you in? Well, she was a trailblazer, you know, and, and uh, she was sort of, uh, many people called her, you know, like the uh, the African-American, you'd say that in those days, they said the black Marilyn Monroe. And uh, she she was more than just a pretty face and she really wanted to have her voice heard and, and, uh, but she was a tragic figure in that she tended to be attracted to people who abused her. I thought, uh, it was really a great, great story. And, and Halle Berry is just such a, uh, you know, it's, it's strange to say it, but she's even more beautiful in person. So to be around her, um, and her passion for that project was really exciting. And, and also Martha Coolidge, the director, um, was, was very passionate about the material. So it was, it was fun. You know, this is before its time. It's about 20 years ago or 21 years ago, and, um, and, or maybe even a little more than that now. Um, but it was a very uh, female-centric set, and it was, you know, I, think, I thought it was fun to be a part of that because most of the movies that I had been on were either, you know, male stars or male directors. And, uh, and Martha and, and Hallie had such a unique, interesting perspective on Dorothy, and I was, I was really glad to be around it. And what was it about your current movie, The Manson Brothers, that drew you in? Max Martini, the director, is an old friend of mine. We first worked together on a show called Harsh Realm about 20 years ago, and uh, he's just one of my favorite people. And he called me and said, I'm going to direct this thing. And, and coincidentally, I knew uh, MJ Mike Carey. Uh, we did the movie Chirac together with Spike Lee here in Chicago. And he's a great guy, and uh, he sent me the script, and I thought, oh, this is a lot of fun. And what can you say about your character, Vic Quickbuck, who is not a wrestler in the movie, but rather someone who financially exploits them? Well, I thought it was a, it was a great opportunity to, to play, you know, a very kind of broadly comedic role. And uh, I think that uh, Vic, you know, he, he sees himself as sort of Don King, but I think he's a little closer to Don Ho. And uh, I just thought it was a very funny uh, character that, you know, that he thinks he's, he's uh, you know, illusions of grandeur. And uh, he's he's dishonest and he's a cheat. And uh, I just thought that was a great opportunity for uh, for comedy. And aside from the comedy in the movie, have you ever felt like there were any Vic Quickbucks in your life and exploitation of actors in the film world? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's Hollywood. I mean, they're a dime a dozen. That was the fun part about playing Vic Quickbuck. But I, I don't want to call anybody out by name, but, you know, I mean, Hollywood is a selfish place. And uh, almost everybody's in it for themselves. And, you know, you don't see a lot of uh, uh, people that are, you know, uh, you know, looking out for the actor's interest as much as they're trying to just make the project profitable. Now, this action thriller is also timely with its convergence of two pressing themes out there in the real world. These modern day gladiators facing a pandemic of infected opponents in the ring and also at a time when pandemic has caused massive unemployment with many having to take terrible and even dangerous jobs to survive in this movie. What are your thoughts about that? I think it's kind of remarkable that, uh, you know, Mike Carey and uh, Chris Margatis, that they wrote this thing before the pandemic struck, and it had this sort of comedic take on a 
on a pandemic, you know, in this case, it's a, it's a, an infection of zombies, but the idea that everybody's affected by this one thing was, was very timely. And, uh, you know, I think that, that the movie is, is fun in the sense that it takes that idea and turns it into, uh, you know, comedy and then escape. But, uh, it's a very serious moment. And, and, uh, yeah, a lot of people are definitely having to take risks to, uh, you know, provide for their families. And I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to normal as soon as we can. Now, I'd like to ask you about, among your many prominent roles, your work in the back-to-back films, Francis Ford Coppola's Gardens of Stone and John Sayles' Eight Men Out. What was it like working under those two directing icons, and how would you compare and contrast being directed by Coppola and John Sayles? Well, very different experiences. Uh, in Gardens of Stone, tragically, Francis's son was killed after we had filmed two days of uh, the movie, and so the entire... He was killed in a boating accident in uh, in Washington in the Potomac River, and uh, so we filmed the entire movie in Arlington National Cemetery, and you know under the pall of the Coppola family's incredible loss. So it was a very very strange experience, and it was it was all new to me anyway because it was my first starring role in a movie, and uh, I think it would have been strange in any event. But uh, that 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 the pall of that tragedy hanging over the movie just was always hung in my mind, and and it affected the movie. Um, and Eight Men Out, John Sayles was a very interesting guy to be around I and mean, he's a very cerebral guy and and uh um he doesn't really both coppola and, and the sales neither of them really uh you know direct overly direct actors you know they pretty much i think they both feel like the most important thing the director does is casting the right person in the right role and then they kind of let you go and nudge you once in a while and what are your memories of working with dennis hopper on crash Dennis was a uh, was a very interesting guy, very private guy, and uh, you know he 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 sort of worked uh, very privately, and uh, he was very respectful to everybody, and I really enjoyed you know seeing him work and being around him. Um, but we didn't have a lot of uh, personal contact years before. Um, we had both trained at the same gym at Gold's Gym in Venice, which was uh, kind of interesting. I used to bump into him there, and he was very different kind of a person away from work, you know, very avuncular and, and uh, just a friendly, friendly guy. And, you know, one of the great icons of film. So it was fun. Um, my career started in the 80s and I got to bump up against a lot of people like Dennis Hopper from the golden age of film, you know, before. Yeah. Sort of, you know, we don't really have anybody like that anymore. Now you ventured into screenwriting and directing as well with Two Tickets to Paradise, which you've described as an inspiration to, quote, really want to do a movie about guys, American guys, not Hollywood guys, the guys we grew up with on the East Coast, guys who never left home, guys who feel like maybe they didn't get everything they thought was coming their way. And that became one of the themes and disappointments. Yeah, I mean, the the direct inspiration for the movie was uh, the events of 9-11, which obviously we're on the 20th anniversary of. And uh, it's... uh, you know, I grew up in Long Island, and many people were directly affected. So a lot of people that I grew up with became New York City cops and firemen, and um, and some of them served in the military. So the idea that um, your life is at its greatest moment when you're 17, 18, 19 years old, and then you have the rest of your life to live. And I thought that was a good theme. And so the, the story of Two Tickets to Paradise is about three guys who are just on the, you know, just on the, on the, uh, on the downside of 40 who, who realize that, you know, there's nothing left. Uh, we, we have nothing to look forward to. And uh, I just thought that was a compelling theme because I think many people experience that where, you know, once after their senior prom in high school, there's, there's no great event, maybe, maybe their marriage, but there's no, nothing to look forward to on that level. And are you thinking about any other film ventures? Yeah, well, I'm very excited about this short film that I did with Sean Austin called Two Dumb Mix, which is a, a comedy short. It's won over 75 film festival awards, and uh, it's uh, it's sort of in the Abbott and Costello vein. It's slapstick, and, and again, I thought it was it was very timely during the pa- pandemic because everybody needed a, a laugh, you know, a sort of a nonpartisan laugh. And, and uh, Sean and I are going to do more uh, episodes. You know, you call them sequels, I guess, but the, the short films don't really have sequels. They're they're going to be sort of more episodes of these two characters. And we've written, uh, I've written several more episodes that we're going to try and film towards the end of this year. But uh, it's been, you know, the pandemic has made it really difficult for all filming, but especially independent filming, because, you know, the budgets are so tight, uh, always on Hollywood projects, but on independent projects are even more tight. So the, uh, the pandemic just adds all these costs that you just can't bear. And any last word on the Manson Brothers? 
Yeah, I think it's a great midnight movie, and uh, we we had a screening of it in Nashville, and my friend Meatloaf got to see it, and he's obviously a uh, star of Rocky Horror, the ultimate midnight movie, and he yeah. said, "This is a great midnight movie. I hope people will watch it." So, and you know, job number one is to take people away from whatever is bothering people in their own lives and entertain them and let them escape from it. So, I think Manson Brothers really does that. It doesn't take itself too seriously, and there's a lot of really good actors in it, and uh, it's just a really fun, fun ride. Okay, thanks so much, D.B. Sweeney, for calling into our show. Thank you very much. Bye. And the Manson Brothers is out now in release. John Savage. If you're if you're listening to this right now, you're way ahead of everybody else in the world. This is Arts Express with Barry Miller, and she's had the courage to give a call to me, uh, John Savage, and uh, I'm grateful to be a part of what I consider to be one of our most important radio programs and networks we have available in this country today. So hang in there. All right. Next on Arts Express. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. to shock women into uncontrolled hysteria, to prey upon the innocence of children, the spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions, Frankenstein. Don't touch that! Hi, this is Jack Shalom. If ever there was an immortal movie monster, it was Frankenstein, or more correctly, Frankenstein's monster. And of course, the role of the monster was originally played by Boris Karloff, who starred in scores of horror films. A new film documentary, Boris Karloff, The Man Behind the Monster, explores just who this amazing actor was. I'm happy to be talking with filmmakers Thomas Hamilton and Ron McCluskey to the show. Hi, Thomas. Hi there, Jack. And hi, Ron. Hi, Jack. How are you? Good. Why did you feel now was the right time to focus on the life of Boris Karloff? It's the 90th anniversary of the movie when it came out. It came out in December of 1931. It really changed everything. It it really created the genre of horror. And to know that it's been out there for so long, and the 90th anniversary is now, it's just great. I defy anyone to go into any store during this time of year with the Halloween decorations, and you don't see the image of Frankenstein somewhere. I mean, that's how lasting that image has been. And it was really, in my opinion, because of three geniuses that worked on the film. It was James Whale, the director, Jack Pierce, the makeup man, and Boris Karloff himself that all came up with that iconic look. How did you get involved in making this film? Well, it started life with Ron, and Ron actually started this film as far back as 1997, or at least trying to get this film off the ground. Uh, Ron, do you want to take the story? Yeah, I mean, this has been a lifelong passion of mine. When I was seven years old in the 1960s, they showed the uh, movies on television. I saw Frankenstein uh, immediately related to it, as well as millions of other children. They felt such sympathy for the monster. And again, that's because of the acting of Boris Karloff. And then they also had other things in, in the stores. They had toys and models. So I went out and got my first model. I still have it to this day, and I just started collecting and never, never stopped. In 1997, I had an opportunity to meet Sarah Karloff, Boris's only child, for the first time. And from that day forward, I I told her, I want to make a film about your dad. 
and illustrate and show everyone what a great actor he really was. And then I met Tom about three years ago, and we finally clicked, and things started moving, and, and now we have a movie. We must come from a similar generation, because I remember those monster models. <laughs> they, they were a lot of fun. Oh, sure. And the magazines, too. Famous Monsters of yeah. Filmland. Just great stuff. Yeah, yeah. How did Karloff get the role of the monster? Basically, originally, Carl Lemley was looking for a follow-up to Dracula, um, which obviously had made a star out of Bela Lugosi. And when um, Robert Florey, who was a very uh, rising director at that point, suggested an adaptation of Frankenstein because it was public domain, Carl Lemley was very in intrigued and, and wanted to do it. Problem was that Bela Lugosi didn't want to do it. He didn't want to play a part uh, that had no dialogue. And in the script that Robert Florey wrote was completely unsympathetic. He was just a kind of lumbering hulk. So that wasn't going to happen. Carl Lemley had a new director working on the lot who had just made two very successful films. And so he said to James Well, well, why don't you pick any script that we have that interests you to, to develop? And James Well said, well, the only one that's interesting is this one, which was Frankenstein. And so Carl Lemley turned the project over to James Whale. And it was James Whale who first spotted Boris Karloff at Universal. Apparently, James Whale said to his assistant, that face has possibilities. And they called him over and that was they tested him and that was how he got the part. Well, Frankenstein is something of a breakthrough in, in monster movies in that the monster is not just a scary creature, but... Karloff gives him these uh, childlike human qualities as well. How Absolutely. much of Frankenstein's monster was in the script and how much was Karloff? I think that's a you know, really good question. It's kind of hard to say that, but I, I, I really think James Well had a lot to do with that. Karloff was an actor that you know you respected and you listened to, you, to your director. Well had a lot to the making of that film and the story and how it was told. And Karloff, again, being an actor, did what he was told, but what he did was amazing. He really, yeah. really brought such empathy uh, to the creature that it really made a difference. I think also James Whale had a real feeling for outsiders in his films. He was kind of an outsider, posing as a sort of gentleman in Hollywood, and Boris was also a bit of an outsider in his own respect. And, and I think this just chimed. It was the perfect meeting of talent the part, the actor. And I don't think anyone else could have did what Boris did, even if, even if it had still been James Whale and the, you know, the same, same approach. I don't think anyone else could have brought what Karloff brought to that role. So you mentioned Jack yes. Pierce, the yes. monster makeup man. Tell us about him and what role he played in Karloff's life. I don't think enough can be said about this, this man, Jack Pierce. I mean, he not only did Frankenstein, but he also did the mummy and he did the wolfman and just some great great stuff and in our film john landis who's just a wonderful director says that you know every morning karloff went to get makeup jack pierce had to start all over again and it, it took i don't know sometimes four or five hours to uh to get in that makeup and because of karloff and his uh, insistence on forming the screen actors guild believe it or not when you went to work and you sat in that makeup chair, you were not paid. <laughs> you were not paid until you stepped on the set. So Karloff, uh, being the founder of the Screen Actors Guild, made sure that th little things like that were changed and that actors were paid for their time, were given meal breaks and other things that happened. But yeah, Jack Pierce, so important to not only Frankenstein, but the whole universe a lot and everything they made. You mentioned that Karloff was one of the founders of the Screen Actors Guild, and I think that's a part of his life that's maybe not that well known. Mm. T tell us a little bit more about that. Well, he, he was one of these actors that really had uh, a strong memory of his beginnings and really saw the way people were treated, especially extras and, and minor people, and that's where he started. And as he rose up the ladder, I think he used to see the way other actors were treated and just didn't feel that that was the right thing. So he really cared about making sure, because it, I mean, even Ron Perlman says in the film, you know, a lot of people think of actors as just, you know, opening nights and red carpets and whatever, but it's, mm. it's hard work. <laughs> Karloff was one of the founding members. 
along with James Gleason and Jimmy Cagney, uh, even Lugosi. He was one of the founding members as well. So it really was important to these actors that they're treated fairly. He well, had a rough upbringing, didn't he? Yes, yes, he did. I mean, his father was uh, was not a nice man. It was pretty violent. But his father was off, was divorced from his mother by the time Boris was two years old. When he was a boy, all of his siblings were, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years older than him. So he really had no siblings of his own age. And, um, and apparently he, you know, he suffered some mockery because, you know, he had a stammer and he already had the bull legs. So, yeah, he had a tough time in that respect. Uh, Jack, he also had a dark complexion and uh, that made him stand out from his classmates. And if mm. you read the book of Frankenstein, the novel by Mary Shelley, she really points that out, that the creature was not accepted into the world strictly because of his appearance. And in many ways, that's exactly what happened with Boris. Because of his appearance, because of his dark skin, he wasn't accepted as, as well as everyone else. And I think that's one of the things that Boris Karloff related to in making the film. Uh, some may think this is a, a silly comparison. <laughs> but the actor that Karloff reminds me most of is Laurence Olivier. Something about the way he completely transformed himself outwardly, but he also had the inward transformation too. That's yes, so subtle. Absolutely. In the 1950s, he was involved in a charity performance. Possibly the royal family were, were in attendance. And interestingly enough, he was part of, uh, I believe it was a skit involving Laurence Olivier. It's nice to know that he, he did that. What was your favorite Karloff role. I know there are so many. And, you know, you could probably throw out the names of different movie hmm. monsters and people wouldn't even be aware that it was Karloff. Well, what we tried to do is we tried to show other films that he was in as well. And again, to me, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein is like in a separate category. They're so good and, and so well done. But the other two films we talk about in the documentary, which I think are well deserved, is The Black Room and The Body Snatcher, which I think both were Oscar-worthy performances, but back then the Academy did not recognize horror films. But those two mm. films, and of course Targets, which was wonderful. Mm. And, and another one that I like very much is The Black Cat, where he is, for once, totally evil. Not a trace of the normal charm that you normally see in, in Boris. He delivers a wonderful, still just mesmerizing performance in that film. He made a number of movies with Bela Lugosi, who was the original Dracula. What was his relationship with Karloff? Were, were they rivals or was it a friendly competition or, or not at all? The studio tried to portray them as rivals because obviously it was good business to say Karloff versus Lugosi. The, the fact was that initially, of course, there was a little tension, I think, on L Bela Lugosi's side because of the whole background of Frankenstein and essentially losing the part to Boris Karloff, although he didn't really lose it to Boris Karloff. But um, so on the Black Cat, reputedly, Lugosi was quite suspicious of Karloff to begin with because he thought he was going to play tricks on him, you know, actress tricks to try and take scenes from him. And then he gradually realized that Karloff didn't play those kind of games they came to admire each other in terms of the way they worked. And although they were never close friends, they respected one another and did seem to like working with each other. Does this generation, say the under 30s, in your experience, know who Boris Karloff is? I don't think they know I think a because lot of, of the Grinch, they, they know Karloff, because the Grinch is played every single year. But, and, and, you know, they also may know Frankenstein. But if there's any actors out there or any students of film, they really have to investigate Boris Karloff. They really have to mm -hmm. look into his career, again, not only as a film actor, but just as an actor to see mm -hmm. what he brought to the table and, and how he admired and loved and trusted other actors. So mm -hmm. anybody that really is pursuing that career, they ought to look at the career of Boris Karloff. 
that's what I really liked about your film is, as you say, you you investigate Karloff as an actor, not just as sort of this monster icon, mm. which I, I could imagine, you know, a, a film about Karloff could turn into. Did he regret not playing a wider range of non-horror roles? I think he was very pragmatic about it. He always said, "I, you know, I, I, I'm th- you know, grateful to the monster. I'm, I'm happily typecast because he kept working for the rest of his life from 1931 until virtually the day he died. You know, there was, you know, he was never without work. Even, even when horror films were not being made, he was still able to find work. And he did do other sorts of roles on, on stage. He was Captain Hook in Broadway. And also, you know, he was in The Lark, which he gives a wonderful performance. And we were very happy to be able to include a little clip of him on stage, yeah. uh, you know, from the Hallmark Hall of Fame. So I think fun. he was pleased that he got to get some chances outside of that. But no, I don't think he had any regrets in that respect. What most surprised you about what you learned about Karloff? I did not realize how difficult his childhood was. You know, on one side, the Pratt family was very, very important in in the British government. One brother was responsible for a thing called the Indian Stamp Act. One brother was knighted by the Queen, and he was called Sir. And another brother uh, was friends and corresponded with Gandhi. So, So that's very impressive. But then behind closed doors, you found out how abusive his father was. His mother had had mental problems. Uh, his one brother was charged with murder, and <laughs> you know it was it was difficult. And I think he had a fear of his father because for a while the father left that the father was going to come back and maybe beat him. Oh. So when he left England, I think he was not only looking for a new life, but he wanted to leave the old life behind. His career had a revival in the '60s because of television. I remember. Mm watching as a child his horror TV anthology thriller. This is a thriller. I yes. remember that little tagline. Yes. Uh, and he, he liked to work with young directors also, like Peter Bogdanovich and Roger Corman, right? And though ill, he had a remarkable role in the film Targets, directed by Peter Bogdanovich. Tell us about that. Well, th- actually, this kind of continues the, the previous question in a way, because one of the surprises for me was to discover just how ill he he became after about 1957 and how it really didn't show up on screen. You could not tell because he was such a consummate professional that the moment the camera started rolling, it was all for the moment. Even, you know, when he did the Red Skelton show and was very ill, and we have this moment, this wonderful moment when, you know, he walks on the, on the set and the audience just bursts into applause because they had seen him earlier rehearsing in a wheelchair, and it was their reaction of kind of feeling a little sorry for him that made him turn to Vincent Price and say, do you think they're feeling sorry for me? Is it affecting the laughter? And Vincent said, yes, I think it is. And that's when he tore off the mask and said, okay, I'll walk for the rest of the rehearsal and show. But this was one thing that really, really impressed me. And and I think it impressed everyone that he worked with in, in that period. The fact that he would go to great lengths to make sure that the performance was entirely convincing, despite often being in pain, short of breath, this sort of thing. And and we get a lot of stories about that. It's amazing that clip you show of the Red Skelton show, mm. where after he finished it, he, he runs off stage for an oxygen mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's in the clip, he's singing you know, a parody song, and he's just yes. delightful. You would Absolutely. never know there was anything wrong with the man. And you have a you have a real treat in the film, a little clip from Targets mm. where he's doing this three-page monologue oh, yes. where he's just sitting in a hotel room telling a story mm-hmm. about his appointment in Samara. Yes. And the thing and that it- Guillermo del Toro points out about that scene, there were no special effects, There was no makeup, nothing, just bars Karloff sitting there telling a story, and you're mesmerized. What would you say as we wrap up? What is Mm -hmm. Karloff's legacy? Well, I I would say, on the one hand, the Screen Actors Guild is a great legacy. It's changed the profession, and it's given actors rights, and they're much better treated now than they were 80 years ago, 90 years ago. 
The other legacy is, I think, the whole horror film industry as we know it. Because although Dracula was a big success, it was kind of seen as a, a literary adaption, adaptation, whereas horror as such really came into being with the Frankenstein movies and you know the films that followed that. And that was the moment when Universal realized that this is something big and we have to start making more films like this. And then all the other studios jumped on the bandwagon. And when will the film be released and how will it be available? It's playing at a number of theatres across the United States. and um, oh, oh, so it's released theatrically. Oh, Yes, it's uh, theatrically released, which is That's wonderful. unusual these days when I interview someone. Um, so, which is wonderful because Karloff had his first success in theatrical release in 1931. So it's, it's very right that this documentary be in theatres first. And then it will be available, um, I believe there's, um, yes, it will be available in streaming. <laughs> It'll be streaming or video on demand, that kind of thing. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. Great. Well, it's, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much, Thomas and Ron. Okay. You are welcome. Thank you. Little, I've been speaking with Thomas Hamilton and Ron McCluskey, filmmakers of Boris Karloff, the man behind the monster. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Let me assure you, my friends, this is a thriller. And now on Arts Express, somewhere in America, just a guy in a local barber shop singing his heart out performing Sam Cooke live and with the instrumental as backup that he put together on his cell phone.
Beat will go out now on Arts Express with Bro on the Global Television Beat. Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro probing strikes and financial tomfoolery, highlighting an alternative fall TV season. Influenced by the vast transfer of wealth that has followed the global billionaire accumulations in the online gold rush, and what all that has to do with Zola, French coal miners, and reimagining Germinal as a TV series, the Battle of Black Mountain and Maitwan, and connections to the Teamsters' attempts to come to the aid of Amazon workers in the struggle to organize. But first, a tribute to Jean-Paul Belmondo and the passing of the new wave French actor who defined that 60s subversive renaissance in film. This is Bro on the global television beat, Breaking Glass. To note in passing, Jean-Paul Belmondo died last week at 88. Belmondo was the new wave icon, said to have brought insouciance and general moral nonchalance, a new body to the French cinema, notably in Godard's Breathless, Perrault Le Fou, and Une Femme et Une Femme. He was an active part of all the contradictions of the day. Born of extremely privileged heritage in Neuilly, the richest city in France, he also was briefly a soldier taking part in the war in Algeria. However, he then was the lead in Perrault Le Fou, pursued along with his female accomplice by OAS gangsters in a direct reference to the conservative forces that tried to oust de Gaulle because of his ending of the Algerian War. The film was censored for even these references, with the censors paying particularly acute attention after Godard's film two years earlier, Le Petit Soldat, in a way remade in the U.S. by Hal Ashby as The Last Recall, and both about a soldier's reluctance to do their duty, in the French case, to go to the Algerian War. Belmondo was also during this period the head of the French Actors Union, an affiliate of today's still more radical union, the CGT, and remained after his new wave stint an emblem of the French popular cinema. Today's episode, Strikes and Financial Tomfoolery Highlight an Alternative Global Fall TV Season. It's Emmy Award season, but rather than dwell on television's past, it might be better to dwell on its future. What follows are the best and worst of fall series, previewed at the recently concluded Series Mania, the festival of global television in the French Northwest former mining center of Lille, where many of the series were concerned with either highlighting or concealing and smoothing over class differences in the wake of the vast transfer of wealth that has followed the COVID billionaire accumulation in the online gold rush. The location was relevant because the best of these series was a new French public television version of Germinal. Two episodes of the six were broadcast at sites throughout this region, which, when Zola wrote the novel in the 1880s about a worker action in 1860, was still the coal mining and industrial center of the world. The novel is a long debate about the need for, the effectiveness of, and the tactical ways of managing a strike as a way of workers clawing back some measure of decency from a life which requires ever more sacrifices just to make one's daily bread. It's the same struggle workers in sites like Amazon are engaged in today, as they also face a triple onslaught from the government as, with the Delta COVID strain rampant, Texas attacks mostly minority working class women's rights to abortion, and the Democrats allow the rent moratorium to end, throwing millions out into the street while withdrawing financial support in an attempt to force workers back to work in the same low-paying but now more dangerous job. To add insult to injury, all three attacks came over Labor Day weekend. Reimagining Germinal as series television actually restores the novel to its original serialized version, with its own hourly climaxes, somewhat as Zola had written them for French magazines like Gilles Bloch. This is as opposed to tarnishing Zola's image in a way that the supposedly magisterial but actually stuffily conservative 1993 film version by Claude Berry did in turning the living, breathing workers of Zola's novel into stone-faced French national icons. There's a nice blend of personal and collective in the endings of the first two episodes, which need to propel the audience forward. Episode one ends with what is depicted as the rape of a mining girl, Catherine, by a rough fellow miner, Cheval. While episode two ends with Catherine's mother, Mayoud, after her young son is crippled for life in a mining accident, casting a full-throated vote for a strike. There's a nod to contemporary financial structure as the mine manager, Anabu, positioned at the end of a long table 
at the opposite end of which sit the Parisian company stockholders, argues for the miners, but is told by the board members that this is a war and they cannot relent. The series is shot in cinemascope, but rather than giving the work a sense of grandeur, the effect, because of the grisly palette, with the director citing his influences, Peaky Blinders and the darkly ominous films of James Gray, such as Little Odessa and The Arts, the effect is one of gloomy misery, visually echoing Zola's description of the mine as a mechanical monster, and the men and women mere beasts or insects fed to the monster. The series writer cites John Sayles' Matewan as an influence, and the series premiered just days before the 100-year anniversary of what was called the Battle of Blair Mountain that the Sayles film is based on, and which saw miners battle a company private army in an attempt to organize the Appalachian coal fields, not dissimilar to the strike described in Germinal or the Teamsters' attempt to come to the aid of Amazon workers in their struggle to organize. The producers turned down an invitation to premiere the series at the Venice Film Festival, preferring to present it as television and to premiere it in one of the iterations of what was the Ehrenberg Pit in the town of Volaires, near where the novel's action took place. The series is being used as a calling card for production development in this area as a means of replacing the long-deserted mines. It is unfortunately also being trumpeted by the region's director, Xavier Bertrand, is part of his calling card to represent the right-wing Republicans in the next presidential election on, ironically, an anti-working-class emphasis on the false issues of security and immigration, thus undoing Zola's work in the novel. On the plus side, the series also corrects an unbalance with the French series that are prized, often being ineffective imitations of their American counterparts. 10% is warmed over, sentimentalized, the Larry Sanders show and episodes, both bitter satires of the entertainment business, and engrenage is only a step above law and order. The best French series are those which deal in an authentic way with French history, en village français, about the German occupation and the price of peace, about Switzerland coming to grips with its Nazi past after the war or with contemporary social problems, the very excellent and only slightly veiled attack on carcinogenic polluters like Monsanto in Game of Influence, about the high-priced European citizens pay for the corporate misery and money invested in lobbying. In the aesthetic realm, there is almost a reversal of the situation in art in the first half of the last century, where everywhere there were copies of French art which generally stifled local artists just as copying of American rom-com and crime formats today stifles more relevant French television and film production. The companion piece to Germinal, in terms of its high degree of class consciousness, is the Australian series The Unusual Suspects, about two high-end families and their Filipina maids in Sydney's lavish, gated eastern suburbs. This series follows in the wake of the White Lotus's concentration on the gap between rich, pampered tourists from the mainland and the still-colonized Hawaiians who serve them at an elegant resort. Described, by the way, in the New York Times, not as a series about gross inequality, but as part of a resort cycle of series about problems with vacationing. Both these shows, despite the New York Times' description, make series that simply concentrate on the foibles of the rich, such as Nine Perfect Strangers, now seem antiquated. The Unusual Suspects has the matron of the two households, betrayed by either criminal or incompetent husbands, aligning with their maids to pull a heist to try to maintain their status. The show is a vicious satire about privilege, with Sarah, whose brand is hashtag love your nanny, ordering her maid Evie to sit at the breakfast table for a publicity photo as if they are one happy family, and then after the photo, ordering her to get up and clean up. The series has more on its mind, though, than class satire. It is actually about the way that the dominance of financial capital and the symbolic economy is turning people into various kinds of scam artists, where nothing and no value is real. Sarah's, that's Miranda Otto from Lord of the Rings, company, which she is trying to sell to an American investor, is all about family management, but she doesn't know where her own kids are and that they have gone to the zoo. Roxanne, Filipino herself, who runs a high-end women's health spa described as a kind of scam where intuitive care is packaged as abundant scarcity, wrecks her maid Anna's pension by allowing her husband to invest it in his Ponzi scheme, resulting in a bonding food fight between the two since they are both now victims of the scheme. Gigi, a young Filipina 
refuses to do the work of a maid and instead insinuates herself into Sydney society as a coach and self-help guru. The cross-class bonding between the matrons and their maids and the planned heist makes for an exciting series in the vein of the previous Aussie series, Wanted, about two women of different classes coming together. The real point of the series, though, and its breakthrough, is the way it highlights the sham element of advanced capitalist societies, where value is divorced from production and created and lost on the whim of its influencers, hedge fund investors, and vulture capitalists. The deterioration of Germinal's factory economy is the starting point for Croatia's The Last Socialist Artifact, about two entrepreneurs who must revive a turbine plant in rural Croatia, where the company has long since moved as a part of deindustrialization after the end of the Soviet era. The two work to reactivate the factory and restore the town, which is full of too soon and too long pensioned engineers, plant managers, and workers, now being given later in life a second chance. The series is a kind of music man for the deglobalized generation, a left-for-dead rural and eastern Europe which saw its economy closed or plundered after the heavy infusion of capital post-1989. The question is whether the two idea men from the capital Zagreb will deliver on their promises. The trouble in this river city is the global trouble of lives wasted because of lack of work, with the series focusing on the hope of a revival, as skilled workers from the town bring a new fellow feeling which outdistances and changes the entrepreneurs, humanizing them and giving them a stake in the well-being of the town that becomes more than just an investment, as one takes up with a local bartender and the other falls for the camaraderie of the ex-factory workers. And this is Bro on the global television beat, Breaking Glass. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.